Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturna. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here's Elder Com Doyle. Of the world system and the times we're in now, so it hasn't changed. So now his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, they're opposed, they're incompatible with each other. He told us there in those um, three or four chapters of red writing how we should really live. Uh, we also learned that the impact on the early church and on many famous men and both Christian and non-Christian alike throughout history was profound. Now the sermon opened with 12 verses and the 12 verses, they of course are known as the Beatitude. And uh, we, I think we mentioned that the word, it came from the Latin word beatus, which was to be blessed or happy. So each one stop, starts with blessed or happy. You know, are you in a particular situation? Now, I've seen it written, and I guess we could mention this morning, you could picture it as a staircase. So, you know, when we started last time we were here, we're on blessed are the poor in spirit, and we go up a step, and we're talking today about blessed are those who mourn, and the next step is blessed are those who are meek. And they're all a progression that, that uh, they really show you the evidences, I think, of what a true Christian is that these Beatitudes are displayed in that person, in that individual's life. So um, we learned that our walk begins with poverty of spirit. You know, and that means that we are broken and humble before Jesus. And broken and humble enough to realize that we're absolutely lost. That there's nothing we can do despite whatever qualifications or talents or whatever we bring into this, this world with us. Nothing that we can do can actually save us in that sense. And that we're absolutely lost, but for the grace of God. And, you know, an appropriate scripture, when we, we quote all the time, would be Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved, true faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of any works, lest any man should boast. Powerful words, but very, very true. We recognize our weakness compared to God's greatness. Again, the, the, the gulf is vast. And then we come to a point where we can look at things with the correct spiritual perspective. And, you know, we, we realize that, you know, we're blessed in having our eyes open. We're blessed in the fact that we're saved because the unsaved word of can't see these things. And um, I didn't give it to the guys this morning, but that scripture comes to mind, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 where it talks about the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, the message of the Beatitudes is also foolish if you're perishing. They don't make sense because they're contradictory to the way of the world. Yeah, so this, this thought of being happy or blessed was in a state of poverty or mourning. You know, it's foolishness. You know, I, I thought of uh, the story you might remember when you were in, in uh, school, perhaps as a child, you might have learned some of the old fables. And one was the Pied Piper of Hamlin, which was a, a town somewhere in Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, I thought of this chap, the Pied Piper. And to me, he's like a picture of Satan. So you have him going along, playing this wonderful tune, and all the children following, and all the children could be those 
They could represent the lost and they're going along oblivious to the fact that they're going to destruction or to be lost forever. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's a, something I think that encapsulates the, the, this, this idea of, of those that can see and those that can't see. You know, it's the, the Lord that lifts the veils in our eyes. And we have to realize, I guess, that when we're ministering or witnessing that um, our words are just not enough. It, it has to be the Spirit of God that moves a, on an individual to open their eyes to the gospel and to, as it were, to have the, um, the scales to drop off. You know, nowadays, there's a lot of talk about being woke. This whole idea that you have to adhere to certain worldly philosophies and beliefs about individuals, whether it be same-sex marriage or, or um, you know, gender confusion, I would call it, et cetera, et cetera. But in the Bible, it's different. It's not about being woke. It's about being broke. And, uh, you know, we've got many current ideologies in the world, and they spend much of their time and effort in trying to find somebody to blame for the situation. So we have this sort of idea of class warfare where, you know, people are blaming others for their poverty. They're blaming the privileged class or the blaming the white privileged class or whatever. And... Um, it goes against what's, well, I'm just trying to say, but it goes against what's, what's been spoken of in the Beatitudes because in there, we've got to look at ourselves. The problem is not actually in the world outside. The problem is within ourselves. We're the ones that are actually the cause of our own issues. So we have to look within and we have to, you know, see ourselves as being the origin of the problem and not blame others. And, uh, you know, that comes from the, I guess, from the garden you know, where Adam blamed Eve, Eve, Eve blamed the serpent and so on. So we have this natural tendency to, to reach out and to look to blame others when we should actually take responsibility ourselves. So, so how can it be blessed to be poor in spirit? How can it be blessed to be in mourning and so on? So they're seemingly paradoxical statements. So I just thought before we go any further, let's read again that full passage in Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Perhaps one of the most powerful pieces of scripture ever put on paper, I think. All scripture, of course, is good, but good for reproof and for doctrine. So reading there, it says, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It's interesting when you look at that in overview that the first and the last beatitude conclude with 
you know, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So a couple of uh, observations or perhaps statements just to, to, to dwell on before we go a little bit further. Looking at each of those Beatitudes, and just perhaps in the context of the, the church as we see it in the West. Poverty. How much do we hear nowadays about the prosperity gospel? Or the idea, some preachers put it, that we can have all the gold that's on the streets in heaven and have it now. And I'll just ask as I go through these, try to line these up with what the intent is in these Beatitudes. Mourning. The joy of the Lord, it's a wonderful thing. And we should rejoice in Jesus and, and um, you know, all he's done for us. There's so much to rejoice and to be joyous for in the Christian walk. But what about when the preaching is perhaps too trivial or too weighed down with humor to the point where we don't actually get brought to the point where we mourn for our sin or see the need to repent, which is really one of the main purposes of preaching the, the gospel and preaching the, the scriptures, that we'd actually have the light shine on ourselves and see where we are. You know, when we think about the kingdom of God, it's inside the believer. But it's not realized in the world outside yet. And it won't be until the day that Jesus returns. So, you know, while that still prevails, we have to mourn. We have to mourn because there's so many thousands around us, including some of our loved ones and family, who at this point are going to hell. So in a sense, you know, there's things to rejoice about, but there's many, many things to mourn about also. You know, we think of Revelations 21, verse 4. Again, I don't think I gave it to, the, to, to Daniel this morning. It says there that he shall wipe away every tear. It's only that point that the cycle of mourning and, and restoration, you know, will be concluded. And then we go on to the pure in heart. Who gets the most publicity in this world at the moment? You know, is it a persecuted pastor in, in, in Africa or China? Or is it a very well-known church leader or pastor who falls publicly in America or Australia or Britain or somewhere in the West? They're the ones that get the notoriety. Peacemakers. What happens when we try to make peace with the world? You know, especially after pointing out that the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God are they're opposed. You know, they're incompatible you know, by adopting secret sensitive methods or by trying to cozy up to the world, you know, whether it's in music or in, in presentation or whatever. And, um, you know, not realizing that the two systems are incompatible and it'll never work, that we never win people by that way. How about persecution and reviling? You know, um, you just have to look at the scripture, look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. It says there, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if you're displaying the Beatitudes, you're living godly, somewhere you're going to encounter persecution. I want to just to uh, take something, uh, just mention Cara's name here, because I think it was Cara posted something on um, Facebook this, this week. And it moved me because it concerned a Chinese Christian. This is in the context of persecution. And how, how persecution could be handled. 
this particular Chinese believer, and if I remember correctly, it said that he, um, he was in prison for a total of 20 years. I think it was three and a half or four years he spent in a cell, confined in a cell where there was barely enough room to lie down and to, to rest. And the remainder of the time, he was sent to a hard labor camp. In the hard labor camp, he was forced to work in the most disgusting of conditions because he was made to stand in the area of the human waste of that camp. And his wife and child had died when he was in there and he was never told. And in that time, during those occasions, he was saying, I come to the garden alone. And one of the part of the interview is part of this clip. He sang the same thing again, I come to the garden alone. You know, and I just thought, blessed are those, you know, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. You know, it never defeated him, it never brought him down. He was blessed and he still retained that uh, wonderful presence of the Lord in his life. So it moved me. But, um, you know, these are the cases you won't hear about in the public media. So we come to the second beatitude, is the one which we want to look at today a bit closer. Blessed are those who mourn. When I was writing this, I just thought about myself. You know, the, there are personalities like mine, and I tend to lean towards being a bit of a stoic personality. I don't mean in the philosophic sense of the word, but I mean having a personality that doesn't necessarily display emotion in times of grief or pain. That's something perhaps you see many men do because of their upbringing. And, you know, perhaps it's a good thing sometimes to have a person that doesn't panic or keeps it together in a trying situation. But it's not necessarily a good thing to be without emotion. You know, if you cannot display feeling or emotion, then in some ways we're cold or dead. And to be alive means we must feel. And if you take that to the spiritual sense, in the spiritual sense, it's a necessity that we can mourn and grieve over our sinful condition. And that goes to the very heart of being a, a true born-again believer. You know, we must have this ability to, you know, to see sin for what it is and to be able to mourn over it. You know, and once we realize our poverty of spirit and the fact that we we're guilty, as you mentioned before, God and don't have any excuse, and we realize the gravity of our sin, well, then we have to mourn and feel conviction and see how far we've fallen short of God's perfect standards. So there's a logical conclusion. They, they definitely follow one after the other, these um, Beatitudes. Verse 4, the one we want to look at today. Blessed, sorry, bl uh, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the mourning spoken of here, it's not casual, but it's deep and intense as one considers their true state before God. You know, it's bad enough that there's sufficient pain and suffering and death and hardship in the world to mourn and be sad about, you know, for the believer or the non-believer alike. But this sort of mourning, it goes deeper. You know, the mourning that's spoken of here can be both for the condition of us, the individual, or for society and the world at large. You know, to mourn in this manner, one has to realize the real implications of personal sin and sin general, and what it really means in God's eyes and its consequences and effects. You know, we realize 
you know, as, as mature believers that, you know, sin doesn't just affect the perpetrator. You know, if it did, the situation wouldn't be so serious. But it ripples out in time and it affects the surrounding world, both the innocent and the guilty alike. And you just have to reflect on King David's life to, to understand that, that although he was forgiven for his sins, which were many, you know, some are more notable than others, you know, the consequences of his sin weren't taken away. And he was, he was told that the sword would never depart from his house. This is the type of mourning uh, that leads to the godly sorrow and repentance, the salvation that Paul is speaking of in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, in a well-known scripture. For godly sorrow work at repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world work at death. So we see that this verse, in this verse, that godly sorrow, you know, it avails much. But the worldly sorrow, you know, although it can hit our conscience, can make us feel bad, may even torment us. But if it doesn't drive us to Jesus or drive us to, to um, repentance, ultimately this conclusion is of no value. The conclusion is death if we follow it through to its, its ultimate conclusion. Now I have to be honest with myself this morning and ask when I have remorse or I have apparent mourning, is it the mourning that's been spoken of about in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5? And the question is for myself and for everyone here. How many times have you sinned and repented that sin before God only to willingly do the same thing again on a subsequent occasion? You know, that makes it all the worse, doesn't it? It makes you even more circumspect and, and um, thinking of it when you realize that we do that, do that perhaps more than we realize. You know, we should probably add to our prayer list, God help me to genuinely mourn so that I can genuinely repent. And this is where a healthy fear of God really is good for us. You know, the mourning you've spoken of here, it can also be linked to God's grace because if we really can mourn over our sin, shortcoming, understanding our sin, then we're going to be less inclined to abuse or cheapen the grace of God. I've heard it said on several occasions and, um, you know, I know we all have different views and, and I can't grasp it, but the idea that you know, you don't have to repent. You just have to have faith. And I, I don't see it that way. I see that faith and repentance, they do go hand in hand. They are, as it's said, like the two, two sides of a coin. And that the mourning and repentance, they're, they're, um, they're linked. So this beatitude, you know, it must confound the world. True joy, it's not found in selfish ambition or it's not found in excuses we might make to, to, to ward off things. It's not in the approval of others. It's not on self-justification. It's not found in the ex excesses of life, whether they be, you know, sexual immorality or drug abuse or, or you know, a long list of other things that, that come under the heading of worldly pleasures. And there's no doubt that the lure of these things is strong. It has to be, otherwise so many wouldn't get caught by the, the trap that they, they present. But it does take a certain determination to choose a path of mourning. You know, Again, you just have to look at scripture that um, 
So many have tried to do this, that is to live in the, in the world and to fulfill the um, need that's inside them by these sort of things. And you just have to look at King Solomon. You know, if you read about King Solomon, probably the richest man that ever lived, probably the, you know, the, the one that possessed the most and had so many things that would fall into those categories that I described as worldly pleasures. Yet, what did he write in Ecclesiastes, you know, chapter 7, verses 2 to 4? You know, and having lived, lived the life he lived, this is his summation, better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You know, if we're not careful, we can live a, what I call a trivial life and we can avoid things that would cause us to develop. In effect, we're living on, we can live on a lower level. That's not good for us. So mourning enables people to look at life more soberly in a way that invites change and causes growth. In this way, those that truly mourn, they're blessed. And that's in spite of what may, many may think. Again, as I said earlier, it would seem foolishness to those who don't understand the Lord and who haven't had their eyes opened. Consider James, another scripture. James chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. My response to that, my personal response is, I want God to lift me up. I don't want to be lifting myself up before men. I don't want to be lifted by other men. And we so easily do that in our pride and in our arrogance. So where can we see examples of mourning in scripture? Well, there's numerous examples of those who have mourned in Scripture. One, our brother Saab already mentioned this morning, is Mary Magdalene. You know, if you look at, um, I won't read the whole passage because it's long, but just if you take Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 38. It says that one of the Pharisees desired in him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Jesus is moved by the actions of Mary and by her faith. You know, as a comment, I would say the Lord's not impressed with our commentary or opinions on others. And again, it really comes back to our hearts and to how we see our sinful condition before we pass judgment on others, just like the Pharisees did on Jesus and on Mary in that passage. David, we mentioned already, consider Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5 and also verse 10. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputed not iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no guile. 
When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture has turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. I mentioned David here before on several occasions. You consider David, you know, if you read through scripture in, in different times, he was a traitor, a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. And in this, another Psalms like Psalm 51, it's amazing. How could God say that such a man was a man after his own heart? And it's only because on the different occasions, David realized the depth of his sin and when truly convicted, truly mourned over his sin. You know, there's some thoughts that stand out for me in that passage. Sin needs to be covered and not covered up. You know, it's a blessed thing to have a clear account with God. You know, I still remember personally when I came to Christ and the sense of the burden that was lifted off my life and the sense of relief I had when I realized that my sins were forgiven and when I experienced a clean conscience. And I really knew what it meant to be sorrowful for sin because I did the most awful of things. You know, I, I really did. Yeah, and, um, you know, I knew what it meant to, at 34 years of age to be sorrowful for so many wasted years because it's not just sin that you can mourn over. It's the time you've been given. You can mourn over the time that you've wasted on pointless pursuits, you know, that lead to a dead end and no, no, no conclusion of spiritual value. And, um, you know, sad when you think of those things. Not dealing with sin, we see in that passage, includes the aspect that mourning is bad for your health. You know, you repress sin. If you don't mourn over it, if you don't deal with it, it's going to destroy you. It's going to eat you up inside. And verse 10 I mentioned, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusted in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. The wicked are not immune from mourning, but for those who trust in the Lord is mercy. So, so I mean, the world doesn't escape either. Mourning affects the, the saved and unsaved alike. You know, from that we get an idea of why it's important to guard the heart. Because one way of hardening your heart is to try pass away or glance over sin, not to mourn about it, not to deal with it correctly. You know, to jump to a New Testament example, we get a, a sense of Paul's struggle. You know, we see behind the scene his mourning and his honesty. In Romans 7:24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then just going on to the following chapter, verse 1, Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And to walk after the Spirit, a good start will be to follow these Beatitudes, and specifically on today, to mourn, to mourn over our sin. Jesus himself is associated with mourning. He says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he was a man of sorrows. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as we hid 
as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So there's numerous scriptures. I'll just give you a couple more just to show the importance of mourning. Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Or Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I want to be revived this morning. I don't want to linger or dwell in sin. Of course, there's other aspects of mourning. Where we, we're mourning, we're talking about mourning here specifically over sin. You know, there's mourning that we can all experience. And one notable case would be when we lose a loved one. Jesus wept, as the shortest passage in scripture, at the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus also wept at the condition of the world when he looked down in Jerusalem and he said, you know, he could see what they had done and what they were going to do to him and the judgment that was to come on them in Luke uh, chapter 19. And of course, it goes without saying that Jesus had no sin of his own to mourn about because he was sinless and perfect. But the scriptures say that Jesus was exceedingly sorrowful and heavy in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew the cup he would have to drink from when he bore the sins of the world. So there's no, no doubt that Jesus mourned and was sorrowful and was heavy in heart at times. You know, we can mourn over our own melancholic nature or depression, our disappointment with our own decisions or a whole host of things, whether they're lost opportunities or whatever. And that's the reality of life. This reality is that even outside of our own personal sin, the world has fallen and it will bring enough turmoil and problems to cause us to sorrow and mourn and to have difficulty at different times. We cannot escape the consequences of the sin and of a fallen world while we're here. You know, Jesus, he was fully God and fully, under, and fully man and understood the condition of man. And... Um, you know, we could see that um, I was saying, it's, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the joy of the Lord and perhaps I'm not saying forcing or putting on joy, but being joyful all the time. And, you know, we can be joyful internally, but the reality is too that if we're realistic, we can't be joyous 24-7 because there are times when we face great challenges, great tests, or it could be just, you know, we may have a tendency to get depressed from time to time. And it's okay to cry out to God because, um, you know, when you're alone with him, you can spill your heart out, you can speak of these things. And I don't think for one moment he's taken by surprise that even Christians can, can suffer in this way and uh, perhaps not um, put on this perfect image that we would all like to have all the time, you know. I remember my teacher in school telling me, you know, there's a, a time and a place for everything and everything has its proper or correct time and place. You know, and there's a similar verse in Ecclesiastes uh, or a similar thought in Ecclesiastes where it says that, you know, there's a time to weep 
and a time to laugh. But you can't weep 100% of the time and you can't laugh 100% of the time either. So we have to be living a life that's balanced, you know, with these um, two conditions, but be being honest before God at the same time. Having stated there, you know, blessed are those who mourn, what's the, the promise for those? It says that they shall be comforted. What are the comforts? Well, I put down some comforts, and I think the list is, could be uh, extensive. What's the comfort for Christians who mourn? Well, perhaps they can draw to one side, they can realize that they're pilgrims only. And just passing through this world and mourning, it won't last forever. Perhaps they may rejoice at the words of Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. And we know that Jesus partially quoted these in Luke 4. And we know that the fact that it's a fact that the remaining part, portion that he didn't quote will be fulfilled. And it says in that passage, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord had anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is where Jesus paused. And then it goes on. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. We can apply that to ourselves. We may mourn, but we're going to get beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We can have that now and we can have it in the future. Then they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Perhaps they will rejoice that sin repented of is forgiven, but it's also forgotten. You know, it's a, a strange thing, and I've often thought about it. You know, I can remember many of the awful things that I've done, and it, I feel ashamed about it. It brings me shame when I think about it. It says the Lord's forgot about it. I don't know when we get to see him face to face, whether our memories are erased, whether we'll ever forget all those terrible things. You know, if we remember each other and we recognize each other, you know, do we remember the times here, the good times and the bad times? I don't know. But um, it's sobering sometimes just to, uh, although rejoicing in being forgiven, to also dwell on the things that you've done in the past, which uh, weren't so wholesome. One day we'll have glorified bodies and we no longer have to be concerned about sin, sickness and death. One day, we'll see our loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord before us. You know, these are things that uh, we can think about and reflect on, you know, in relation to mourning. I'll just finish with some conclusions and thoughts. When I was preparing for this, I could see, and it's something perhaps that's not spoken very often, that mourning is a very, very big topic in Scripture. Uh, perhaps we need to give more thought to it. You know, it's a necessity that we mourn over sin. The joy of the Christian is not necessarily the same thing as the joy that's experienced in the world. Those of you perhaps here who are nurses or medical or been to a doctor, you'll be familiar with the term anesthesia or anesthetic. You know, we certainly do not want to be as believers anesthetized to sin or become callous towards our own sin. 
Another thought that, that, that came to my mind was that we should not fill up our lives to the brim so that we don't have time to reflect, meditate, and um, if necessary, to mourn. And, you know, it's... Um, we, we live in a world where it wants to occupy all of our time and consume all of our time doing anything and everything but mourning and being quiet. You know, the, the saying goes, silence is golden. Silence is a good thing, so we don't necessarily have to drown it out. With you know, even sermons are good things. Silence is is is, uh, is good, and uh, I guess it should be part of our, our our walk. Did you ever work in a place where they had a swear jar, and uh, you, if you spoke out of turn, you'd have to put a contribution in? And my thought on that was that you know if it cost us every time we sinned in the material sense. And it wasn't a delayed effect as a result of a lot of sin is, if you were penalized then and there on the spot and you had an immediate and visible consequence, do you think you'd sin so easily or would you be more sorrowful? Another thought that I put down was that in today's world of nonstop news and on-call entertainment, which is usually negative, it's possible to become acclimatized and hardened to suffering and sin. You know, after watching so many terrorist attacks on the news, or so many tsunamis or natural disasters, you know, there's a real danger that we forget that there's real people involved, not just um, statistics, and there's real people, perhaps many of whom are lost to eternity, you know, to spend an eternity in hell. We live in a time where people confuse real life with virtual reality. You know, killing people on the street can be as easy as killing people in a video game. And in a similar way, it's easy or possible to look at sin that's displayed under the banner of entertainment and to become immune. You know, how often is violence and immorality, rebellion, divorce, all these things fed to us to the point where we're no longer affected? You know, it's even worse still. How about partaking in that sin by secretly enjoying such things? You know, you might be shocked that I say that, but that can happen. I have a tendency that that, that can happen to me, that you're actually perhaps in some incorrect way gloating over what you're seeing. You know, thank God that's not me, or isn't that terrible? But not really feeling as you should, you know, horrified or, or uh, shocked or or more in mourn, mourning of what you're seeing. You know, partaking that way, you know, or, you know, you can think of all sorts of, there's so many soap operas, there's so many real life or real reality TV, all these things where, you know, terrible things are, are public, you know, put on public display. And, um, you know, I guess as Christians, we shouldn't, shouldn't partake in it, you know, full stop. But God help us to stop doing that or, or gloating over or partaking by watching in sin. You know, it's, um, God help us to live on a higher plane, I think is what I'd probably say, or a higher level, and to do that. And I think, you know, if we're, if we're honest this morning, that's something that we can all do quite easily. Uh, we should check ourselves and, and refrain from it. God help us to have hearts that can still be shocked, you know, 
wouldn't it be great, you know, we could ask the Lord to help us to, to mourn more over something than to be fascinated by it. That'd be a good thing. You know, if anything I said this morning, if it's brought conviction on you, like it's brought conviction on me, and just putting words to paper, well, thank God that your heart's not yet hardened because you can be touched in that way. And, um, you know, you can put things right. You know, we, we know what we should be doing and we know what we shouldn't be doing. And, um, you know, I can certainly see I, I need to make adjustments in my life. And, and I think if we're honest this morning, a lot of us would, would say the same thing. So, so I take it as a word of encouragement and a word of challenge that we should do that. Um, I'll just close on a couple of illustrations, which I hope will help you to hold on to the ideas and the thoughts that I was trying to put forward this morning. And um, three individuals that perhaps are well-known in the Christian world. And I'll just give you a short paragraph on each one just to, to lock this thought in your mind. One was George Whitfield, who was a, a mighty English preacher. And, um, you know, you read about him, there's some incredible accounts of his ministry. But um, the first time it says in this account, he went to open air preach. It was to the Kingswood Miners in Bristol in England. And on a later occasion, he wrote that he could see that they were moved by the white gutters of tears made on their faces. You know, the tears washed the, uh, the smoke or the coal dust off their faces. Hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction, which happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. You know, I've seen in the, whatever it is, 30 odd so years I've been a Christian, maybe that happened on a, on a minimal scale. I felt that sort of conviction myself, but wouldn't it be great to see something like that, see uh, preaching of that, that power and conviction of that power falling on a, perhaps on a Sunday afternoon in Burke Street or somewhere where there's a large group of people. You know, it would be great, wouldn't it? Another gentleman, J.I. Packer, a sense of defilement before God is not morbid, neurotic, or unhealthy in any way. It is natural, realistic, healthy, and a true perception of our condition. You know, you could say shame in many ways is a good thing. It's a good thing that we can still be shamed. It's a bad thing that we can't be shamed. You know, and I just attacked on a little bit there. I, if you have heard of the... Um, Sigmund Freud, he was the one who you know, originated psychoanalysis. He had a sort of reverse view. He believed that religion and the associated guilt actually caused people to be neurotic or caused neurosis. And um, you know, as Christians, we know that's not true. We know that not dealing with our sin, not dealing with issues actually is what causes neurosis and causes us to, to uh, rot, as it were, from the inside out. And uh, Spurgeon, he said that, you know, let a man feel sin just for half an hour and it would be like being thrown into a, I think he said, a, a pit full of snakes and he'd want to come out. He said that um, anyone who could look on sin and not mourn hasn't really been reconciled correctly to Christ. You know, that was sort of a, a quick encapsulation of his words. So I'll just close on that. You know, Lord, help us in these areas. You know, I pray for myself and I pray for all of us. You know, Lord, help us, Lord, to, um, to uh, 
be honest with ourselves, to be honest before you, because you know man from the inside, you know all our thoughts and all our feelings and all our inner workings. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would uh, help us to, to uh, truly mourn over our sin, to be quick to deal with it, to put right our accounts with you, Lord, and with each other, and to take these, these Beatitudes to, to heart and to, um, to look in each one and to, to outwork each one in the vision in our lives. And the Lord bless you today and, um, and uh, we just close the meeting and, and uh, have some fellowship over tea and coffee. Amen.